All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And Chen will be with me uh, a little later in today's show, so uh, you'll want to hear what he has to say. With regard to his newsletter, you do need to put your name on a waiting list. Uh, Chen accepts new subscribers up to a set number only during the first uh, 10 business days of each new quarter. So starting April, Chen will be uh, accepting new subscribers to sign up for his letter Put your name on the waiting list, and to sign up for my letter, go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or you can call our office here in Queens, New York at 718-457-1426. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And would also like to encourage you to continue sending along your questions, comments, praises, criticisms, whatever you have to say, whatever is on your mind about the controversial uh, content of this show, many times anyway, at least it's quite controversial as far as the mainstream is concerned. So if you've got a gripe or if you've got a praise or whatever, send your thoughts along to uh, questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at jtaylormedia. want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Novo Resources, Dynacor Gold Mines, and Copper Bank Resources Corp. Michael Oliver, Chen Lin, and Jeff Deist are my guests today, and they are scheduled to be with me in that order. Few, if any, investment pros other than Austrian economists forecast the market collapse in the housing market bubble. Uh, but Austrians, even some Austrians, um, had sort of uh, those that were whose paychecks were perhaps too closely attached to the mainstream uh, didn't see it coming. But the Austrian economists were among the few who actually were calling for a collapse of the housing market. So with clarity, Austrians uh, that weren't too attached to Wall Street uh, knew that the Keynesian monetarist and economic policies implemented during the Greenspan years would certainly sooner or later fail. So don't let anybody tell you that no one saw it coming. Uh, it, certainly that's what we heard from the mainstream. Uh, and you can imagine that you're going to hear it again in the future when the next bubble comes. But the important thing to keep in mind, though, is that the same failed policies of the past are continuing to be applied even though it is clear to anyone with eyes to see that the policies are not only failing to generate a vibrant economy, but also they are setting us up, creating more bubbles uh, for the next major uh, economic and market catastrophe. 
What about a half past uh, the hour today? I will be talking to Jeff Dice. He's the president of the Mises Institute. I want to ask him to share some of the insights of the Austrian economist at the Mises Institute uh, and see what they have to say with regard to the U.S. economy and where it is headed at this point in time. After our first commercial break in just a few minutes, my partner Chen Lin will be joining me to talk about sectors in the equity market that look most promising to him now. And the one that he is most excited about at present is the biotechnology sector. In fact, Chen thinks that through the use of genetics, the biotech industry is on its way to eradicating cancer, and he thinks within the next decade. Could that be possible? Well, I want to ask Chen how he can make such a bold statement and also get his views uh, on oil and gas markets, and maybe he'll have some things to say about the gold markets, too. Uh, but getting back to the Austrian School of Economics, you know, one of the problems that the Austrian thinkers have, in my view, and I include myself uh, among them, uh, is one of timing. You can be right about the future event, but if you're way too early, years ahead of time sometimes, the time value of money can really wreck your portfolio, big time. I know because uh, I speak from experience on that as well. That is why I'm really pleased to have with me Michael Oliver. Uh, Michael is indeed a free market Austrian economic thinker, but he avoids the problem of being way too early by applying his uh, by applying his economic theory. In fact, he lets the markets do the talking. He applies his own proprietary technology tools, uh, technical tools, uh, analytical tools that he uses for a better sense of where the markets are heading uh, and uh, for a sense of the timing. And uh, as time times uh, grow nearer to a major turn, Michael uh, has certain tools that seem to give him an edge in predicting that event. So it's very valuable, obviously, to have that ability to do that, and that's why we're very pleased uh, to have Michael with us again. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Good to be here, Jay. Really, always good to talk to you, and I'm glad you're with me uh, frequently on this show. Now, I might just tell my listeners uh, that they should go to OliverMSA.com. That's Oliver. M is in Mary, S is in Sam, A is in Albert, OliverMSA.com to learn more about Michael's work and his service. Michael, you put out a, a missive this morning updating your subscribers to a few core markets, including a couple of the major U.S. equity markets, uh, the German and U.S. government uh, debt instruments, for example, gold and oil, and you indicated that you are more focused on uh, the short term now than you have been uh, in the past, perhaps. Why are, you, uh, why are you so focused on the short term for some of these key markets right now? Well, the, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the MSA methodology argues that equity markets have had a major momentum breakage. Now, that mm-hmm. quite often momentum will turn before price shows any evidence of a turn. And I'm talking about long-term timescales of annual momentum and so forth. And that occurred in January. And they're trying to shake it off at this rally, which is not untypical. Uh, for example, in 2000, there was a major momentum breakage in January of 2000, followed by a rally into March. Uh, that was a meaningless rally, but it was nevertheless an attempt by the market to short-term escape from the edge. You know, mm-hmm. It ultimately did not escape. Uh, once the, the big scale of momentum breaks trend and shifts in a new direction, it's, uh, nothing's inevitable, but it's, uh, it's a very strong pull. So I'm pretty convinced we're topping. That's step one. Uh, I think the, the next signal one looks for is more precise as opposed to the big breakage. You're looking for the more pinpoint turns. Um, I'm sus- I suspect that this weekly rally that we've been in now for some weeks is about over. It may last into the first week of March. It might. I'm not 
confident one way or the other on that, but I'm pretty confident that it won't last months. Uh, we're talking days here uh, into the first week of March. <clears throat> what I'm looking at are numbers below both the S&P and the NASDAQ 100, which, of course, is, is in a leadership role here, uh, that if you slip back down just marginally this week or next, especially next week, the numbers get very tight, I see enough weekly momentum breakage to indicate we're turning down. But I, there's a simpler approach now, and I normally don't rely on price because price is often deceptive because everybody can see it, and something mm-hmm. everybody can see and use is, uh, pardon me, it's used. Okay? Yeah. Uh, but in this case, I think you can trust price. In the case of the S&P, if you'll get a price chart on your screen or wherever you have one, and, and take a look at what happened this year, not last. Last year we were up at 2093 at a high. But we dropped down into January, and we had three rallies that each peaked just above 2060. In fact, 2062 to 2063 were the closing peaks of three separate rallies. Mm-hmm. We finally burst through that and have run up now to 2115. If you close a day out back below those, that cluster of closes, uh, I'm of the opinion that is an abort signal, meaning uh, we're, we're on our way down. We're breaking back through the ceiling. The breakout is being aborted. Mm-hmm. NASDAQ has a similar, NASDAQ 100 I'm speaking of, has a similar structure on its weeklies around 4,300. It's now in the uh, mid-4,400s. Uh, so the percent distance from where the markets are now in these price chart levels is not all that great. It's not that wide. So the margin of safety for the bulls right now is, is fairly slim. So they need to watch their P's and Q's here. Uh, and I think if price breaks down through those levels, you can take it at face value. That's an abort. Market is failing. Mm-hmm. In my, uh, in my, in lay terms, in my mind, I'm thinking as I'm listening to you talk about riding a, um, what do you call it? Uh, one of those things you go up and down the uh, roller coaster. Roller coaster, yeah. And as you're approaching, you know, you're going up and up and up, but slowing down, slowing down. You're still rising, and then you reach uh, an inflection point, right? And then it's right. down the other direction. Is that kind of what you're measuring? My, my uh, visualization of an abort is the old films in the late 50s and early 60s down at Cape Canaveral, when they'd shoot a rocket up unmanned at the time, and you'd see it go up about two or three stories in the air, falter, and then fall back to the ground. Uh-huh. Uh, that's my concept of an abort. It's a launch that fails. And the breakout on the S&P above the 2060s and the NASDAQ above 4,300 has gone a certain distance, but it won't be much to abort back below there. And if it does, I think it's a failure, mm-hmm. much like the, the visualization I just gave you. Mm-hmm. Your tools are, are allowing you to see... A, with rising probability, a peak or a valley, I guess. And, Correct. Uh, you know, while the prices are still rising, your intelligence is letting you know, your tools are letting you know uh, that that is coming to an end. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, you obviously put out and talk constantly about these major markets to your subscribers, and I, I'm finding them very, very helpful, Michael. I want to thank you for for your fine work, and again, encourage people to go to OliverMSA.com. You also talked, uh, of course, our favorite market here on this show is gold. Uh, what are you seeing in the gold markets these days? I mean, uh, we're looking at about $1,200 today as yeah. we're talking, I think. Yeah. There's a zone of support that I defined in a report like a week or two ago uh, between uh, uh, the high 1190s and 1203. And we actually traded as low as 1190 today on the uh, active contract, the April close, I think, is around 1197 on the spot month today. We're grinding in this zone of what I think is support. It's not evident on a price chart, but on certain momentum charts, it's pretty clear as a, as a possible floor. Mm-hmm. So far, it's behaving. It has yet to come up out of this hole, and I need to see that evidence. 
uh, evidence that we're turning back up would be something like uh, close out this week around 12.15 would be ample evidence. That mm-hmm. doesn't ask a lot. Um, if you saw that, I think that the sell-off is over. But the big numbers that I really need to see to, to be able to, with full confidence, think the long-term trend is fully changed, back to upside, was for this quarter to post a weekly close credibly above 1300 Now, I've done my uh, calculations for the second quarter because a lot of numbers change. And all I need in the second quarter, which is five weeks away, is a 1285 weekly close. Uh-huh. So what we have to do if you're a gold bull is you need to, it needs to be supported around the current levels. need to see a minor upturn. 1215 should do it on a weekly close. And then we move back up toward those numbers I just specified. If mm-hmm. you can clear those numbers, I think it's green lights across the board. Mm-hmm. I think a major trend change is the bottom is completed. We're going up. Uh, and I think that probably will be similar or an inverse to some other markets that will be doing the opposite. Mm-hmm. Well, we know gold is negatively correlated over long periods of time, at least against uh, equities and uh, and some other markets. What would cause you to think that uh, it's not going to hold? What num- key numbers would you be looking for? I guess if- I, I'm a little foggy on that. I will admit, but uh, getting below yeah. the support credibly on a weekly close, like closing in the 1180s, would bother me. Sure. Uh, it would put me more of a, instead of, I've got a moderately bullish stance, I'd call myself a 60-70% bull, uh, but getting back into that zone fogs up the situation a bit. Um, mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd have to watch for that. I don't particularly want to see a weekly close much under 1190. Yeah. Okay, good enough. Uh, okay. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're hoping, uh, most of us are on the long side of the of the gold market in one way or another, either in the bullion or in the shares. So uh, I know that uh, recently you sort of opined that you thought maybe the shares might lead the bullion up this time. I still think that if the answer to the bull question, the gold question is upside, that the better places to be over the next years is going to be miners, uh, gold miners. And, uh, I mean, you can pick and choose among the various if you're expert at that fundamental of each company and so forth. But I just look at some of the ETFs like GDX or the Junior Gold ETF. I think they will vastly outperform bullion. And that's a spread assessment that I've, I concluded some months ago, that the next bull trend, uh, the miners will beat the, the bullion. Also, I think silver is likely to beat gold. Uh-huh. Upside. But again, I use gold as my benchmark. Uh, it's the papa. And as it goes, these others will follow. But I don't think they'll follow. I think they'll actually lead if it, if it turns mm-hmm. up conclusively. Mm-hmm. Well, that's consistent with uh, with the thoughts of several other people that I uh, that I talk to as well. I guess with the minute left here, uh, Michael, uh, on the uh, on the risk on risk off trade TLT to the junk bonds or junk, uh, let's say mm-hmm. high mm-hmm. yield uh, bonds. How, what how is that looking yet? That's the a trade re- I put on. Re- had a very sharp break recently in that spread. Uh, uh-huh. It was a big break, but it actually did not break anything of significance in my work. It was just a sharp drop within the uptrend. It's rebounded sharply in the last several days, by the way. Uh-huh. Uh, I tend to think that the, the debt markets, let's call it just TLT, net direction of TLT, which is the 20-year government U.S. debt maturities yes. onward. So it's in between the 10-year and the 30. Uh, I think its uptrend is safe. I'm not sure how dynamic it'll be. I suspect if you do get an equity downside, you will get a flight to safety into that some more. It'll help that trend age another quarter or so, the uptrend mm-hmm. that is in the, the TLT, the drop in yields. But in the latter half of this year, I'm looking for a top in the, uh, the bond market and the T-note market and for a point, an inflection point where rates rise, I'm talking long rates. But for now, I don't see that. I think that, that risk is not imminent. 
I think it's something that's probably a Q3 event or later. Mm-hmm. One more thing real quickly, if I might, and this is partly because my next guest is Chen Lin, who is uh, quite invested and has been in, in various uh, oil uh, markets, especially some key stocks that he really has uh, has taken an interest in that have performed very well. Uh, just quickly, you're, you still think that we haven't seen the lows in oil yet? I suspect it's better odds that you're going to see a new low. Now, the only question is whether you're going to see a $20 low or something like that. That uh, A lot of Johnny-come-lately brokerage firms have come out and called for $20 oil. Of course, yeah. they were nowhere to be seen when it was coming down through 100 and it was breaking things. <laughs> uh, but now they're suddenly bearish, and, and yeah. I, I don't pay attention to them. I do think a new low is likely. The question is how deep. I have to assess the low when it occurs. It's highly, not highly likely, it's... it's uh, virtually impossible for my momentum work to confirm a new low, meaning when you do make a new price low, whatever that low is, momentum is not going to be making a new low, in which Uh case that is probably the final low for the oil sell-off, which is a a precursor to an upturn. But uh, Mm -hmm. So a new low is actually a bullish thing from my perspective, Uh, and I suspect in the next few months we're going to see a new low in oil, if not sooner. All right. Well, thank you very much, Michael, for being with us again, sharing your insights with our listeners. We do have to go. That's all the time we have. So uh, thanks again for being with us. Well, folks, don't go away. After the commercial break, Chen Lin's going to be back with us, and Chen's going to talk about biotechs, and we'll get his idea. Uh, his ideas also on a couple of his uh, key oil and gas stocks. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Chen Lin. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me again uh, my partner, Chen Lin. And uh, for those of you who don't know Chen, just a little bit of his background. I think most of you probably do because I talk about him almost every week, mention him on this show, and he's been on a number of times, probably not often enough in recent times. But Chen uh, was a doctoral student, a doctoral candidate at least at the uh, in aeronautical engineering at Princeton, however, he was doing so well investing money that he decided that maybe the better thing, uh, way to use his time would be just to do that. So he has, as we've said many times, uh, a very enviable 
track record. We one account that I know he shared with me, uh, and it was one that was without using any leverage. He was able to grow it from a little over five thousand four hundred dollars to two point two million dollars between two thousand two and two thousand twelve. And I haven't run into too many people who've been able to do better than that. So uh, I don't think it's necessary to say a whole lot more about Chen, other than the fact that he is able to sort of. Uh, conceptually envision different sectors that uh, have something you know that are positive that are uh, there's a way to make money in different sectors so he latches on to themes that allow him to uh, to take a position ahead of most other people and do very well in them so uh, with that said uh, welcome Chen I'm glad that you could join me again today thank you Jay really good to talk to you Chen and I want to ask you uh be- first of all we we were talking yesterday or a couple of days ago perhaps about the sector that you are honing in on now the one that you think uh is most exciting or at least I think that's what you believe at least at this moment uh you're very excited about the uh about uh, the bio uh industry the biotech industry uh, specifically as uh, in the field of cancer research Tell us why you are so optimistic about uh, about cancer research and why you think that, uh, if I understood you right, you think cancer might even be eradicated within the next 10 years. Why? And how? Uh, what is happening in that sector that, that gives you so much optimism? Yeah, there, there's a lot of progress. You know, and I'm not a biotech expert. I only listen to, to the people who have more knowledge than I, I am. And uh, it's... Since there's a breakthrough happened in the past few years, okay, if you Google Emily Whitehead, white, just white color, Whitehead, you can, you know, she's a young girl. Uh, she has a, a, a form of leukemia, and she was diagnosed. It's not responsible for chemo or anything. She supposedly three years ago, she has three months to live, and then we have this, uh, we, we try this uh, CAR-T, car, car it's a new new therapy, basically take her own cell, T-cell, reprogram it so that they can eat, you know, they can attack the, the cancer cell. Uh-huh. And, uh, three years later, she's uh, cancer-free, and she's alive, she's, can- she's just like a normal girl and alive, cancer-free. I mean, it's amazing, okay, there's a two, uh, my understanding, there's a two, two kind of uh, uh, genetic engineering coming out, one is this using the cell, live cell, to attack a cancer cell. Another is to bring a, a, a drug to the cancer drug, mm-hmm. cancer cell to kill, specifically kill, kill the cancer cell. So the other is called ADC. So I have mm-hmm. a company in, in working on both areas. I mean, I'm very excited. Okay, it's, it's, this is a, just a came out, uh, you know, in the past few years. Uh, there's a company like Juno. The IPO is really, really hot last year, and uh, uh, there's uh, a lot of company trying to research that this this supposedly uh, can 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 bring. You know, it's a, they are talking about hundreds of billions of revenue per year once mm-hmm. this becomes successful. Think about you know, there's the people uh, who who die of uh, cancer every day. You sure. Know, um, I'm a I'm a Chinese. There's a Chinese singer, very very famous Chinese singer, died in her twenties just uh, last month. Wow. A lot of people were crying. I don't know her, you know, <laughs> but but she's only in her twenties. But I have a company who developed this this kind of specific uh, drug against cancer. Breast cancer has more than fifty percent response for those who cannot be treated. No, it's not for you know those uh, old older cancer because some cancer responds to chemo. 
Sure. But she, her, her cancer couldn't, it's not a response to cancer, so she died last month. But I, I couldn't help to think, you know, this, this company I invest in, if, you know, if the drug's available, she has more than 50% chance to live. Right, so well, that, that, that's the thing. It's 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 changing so dynamically, and I feel we have uh, next five to ten years uh, we may kill cancer. You know, cancer may not be a uh, past sentence. You know, of a death sentence. That is incredible, Chen. What what is the name of the company? The which I think there's one or two companies that you're invested in. What are the names of them? Oh, I, I, in, in particular, can, cancer, one is Sorrento. Sorrento very, very hot. Okay, last year, I put my newsletter about a $5, around $5 range. Now, today, it's hit 13 just like a, a few months, right? It's, uh, uh, the, the, other, uh, the other one, I, which I'm just buying re- recently, loading up, that's actually made less hot. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's called IMMU, Immunomedics. Because they just did a raise at four dollars, so right now a stock still. Right now I'm trading at four point five, four point oh five, you know, four dollars mm-hmm. five, and only five cents above the offering price. Uh-huh. And then they have uh, very, very important results coming. Uh, they could have uh, a drug that cure lupus. That face three results in, in in three months, and then they have uh-huh. this uh, uh, IMMU one thirty two. That's what I was talking about. This uh, they can, you know, they can treat. Uh, Right now, unable to be treated breast cancer and lung cancer. That one already passed phase two with more than fifty percent success rate. That's very, mm-hmm. you know, very impressive. They just announced it last week, but because they are doing a financing, the stock didn't move. So I think that's one more, maybe a, a more upside. If you, you know, but you have to do on your own research, you know, uh, to take of course, of, of course, investment. So that's that's what I like because uh, you know it's artificially pushed down. Uh, with very good news now, they have uh, they can a major farmer come in license there. Right? Mm-hmm. That can mm-hmm. double the stock potentially easily, and then you have a lupus phase three results coming out, and that that can also yeah. you know do very well. So it's in the next few months, they have very good catalyst. So that's why I'm quite excited. In general, this year Biota has been really hot. I was uh, very lucky uh, that I was buying out biotech. Uh, since uh, December and on the way up. So <laughs> without biotech, my, my portfolio wouldn't be doing that well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but I mean, this is what you've been able to do over the years, Chen. It's, this isn't the first time that you've latched on to a, a sector and have, have done very well with it. Let me just ask you, Sorrento, what's the symbol for that? S-R-N-E, S-R-N-E. They, they, they will have a, a very important results coming out uh, at the end of next month. Okay, so it will be a binary event. Event if it's successful, the stock will jump. If not, stock will, will fall. So, will fall, uh, but they yeah. also have very uh, important technology. That's you that you know for for the other you know for for example using uh, train the, the cell to 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 kill the cancer. That's mm-hmm. a that's why it's not priced in the current stock price. But they're just focused on the very important results, which is next month. Come end of next month, maybe early, you know, early April. So that that's kind of, uh, you know, it's already right rose sharply. You know, I got in um, December, I got a five dollar now, thirteen. I mean, still going up every day. So it's kind of racy now. So I, I would, uh, you know, I would be careful on that. Sure, Chen. Um what is the the other one is I M M U is that the symbol? Right. Uh, yeah. What idea, is the symbol Michael, on that, Chen? Yes, idea Michael Michael unit. 
right? So this one actually a little bit better, safer, because they, you can see the stock was over $5, way over $5 on anticipation of the results. And then they did a $4 placement, the stock was down to $4. Okay, so it's just the added supply that came on the market that knocked it down. And uh, as yeah. you're saying, probably a good time to buy it after the financing. All right, and just one other question on the, on, while we're on this topic. The, uh, the young lady that survived is Emily White, is that her name? Emily White Hat. White Hat. One white Hat, like she yeah. wears a white hat. Yeah, yeah, white hat, H E A D, white hat. A white so, head, okay. Well, yeah, you just, uh, you know, you just Google, Google her and you'll get her story. You can see her story. It's just amazing, fascinating. All right. You know, that's a young girl so survived there and uh, completely, you know, recovered from cancer. Oh, that's that's amazing, Chan. It's, it's really good news. Now, just uh, with the last uh, couple of minutes we have left here, uh, if you get your idea on oil and gas, we just heard what Michael Oliver, I don't know if you heard what he said, he basically thinks we may be near a bottom, uh, we may have a little bit more to go on the downside, but figures that, you know, that's, uh, you know, from a bullish perspective, he's he's feeling better about things because he thinks we're near the low. What are your thoughts on oil and gas? And also, maybe just a quick comment on two of your favorites. I believe they still are anyway, Mart and Pan Orient. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, about almost... About two years ago, I already kind of predicted oil will, I mean, my prediction was that oil will go to $47. At that time, oil was way over $100. So because I saw the supply coming online, so they will create some imbalance, but I don't know when the timing will, you know, will come mm-hmm. down. But sure. And, and it did come last year, which I was, you know, well anticipated. But anyway, I, uh, I was selling very hard at, at in, this, in last September when oil was pretty high. Uh, right now, my point of view is, uh, oil will go to $60 by the end of this year, okay, about mm-hmm. 60, because right now it's not sustainable. $40 is not sustainable because all these uh, wells that they will not be drilled, will not be shut in, and then the, the, the fracking, they, 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 they stop fracking. They just drill the well. They don't need to frack because it doesn't make money, right? There's yeah. no return on investment. They just need to drill that so to, to fulfill their commitment. So all these things happening, I don't think it's sustainable. I think oil will go to $60 above, but not to much higher because if it go too high, a lot of fracker will come back. So my, my philosophy is buy our energy company that can profit at $60 oil. Um, both Mart Resource and Pioran are in that category. Okay, uh, First, on, on Mart, because this has been very volatile in the past few days, uh, they were um, last Friday, Okay, the CEO was under investigation because he sold, apparently, okay, you read the filing, he sold 5 million shares without filing, filed an insider trade, but he was in divorce. He was going through a divorce. I heard, okay, all these things, and then his, his wife has control of the, those shares, and then she did it, you know, may may not without, without his knowledge, because, because he is, uh, there's a separating, right? And last December they divorced, and then officially in the, his name, so if he sold, he should report it, but it probably already in his wife's hand. I, I don't know the detail, but it's under investigation. That's prompt a lot of selling. But I think it's, uh, you know, it's a good buying opportunity just based on that. In addition, there's another news come out. They already received a takeover offer. And, but people don't take that seriously. It's always Nigeria. You know, they just sell and <laughs> stock keep going down. I said, wow, this is crazy. It's a great buying opportunity, I, I will put it this way. Uh-huh. Uh, I think that the, 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 uh, the company is very, very undervalued. At $60, they can generate a lot of cash flow. Uh, they just, a new pipeline just started flowing. And a new well was fantastic. All these are now pricing the stock price. 
and uh, right now it's fifty-five cents Canadian. It's incredible. Uh, it's a very, very good price. Uh, I would think. Okay, the All company. Right. It's only over hundred, a bit over hundred million market cap, and then the other pan orange, they are trading a very high impact well right now in Thailand. Uh, right now, stock is still trading a below cash, which is amazing. They have this high impact well coming uh, very soon, and then they will um, uh, have a talisman deal will close in a couple of months, and they will drill a very very high impact well in Indonesia. So, uh, so all these are now pricing the stock. So I like both stock. Uh, so it's still heavily heavily holding. Uh, uh, I, I mean, I mean, I'm still heavily holding both. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, there, there are also others, right? Uh, energy stock, but I, I don't think we have time to discuss. So, no. but you mentioned we want to talk a little bit about gold or something. Yeah, just just quickly, Chen. Uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on gold? Right, uh, as I said, I was last end of last year. I was buying gold miner, but I uh, in January on January I sold most of them. Uh, the reason was uh, you know they appreciate a lot. Some almost doubled in, in a month or two. Uh, and also, I see you know our friend Goldman is uh, they are calling a hundred dollar gold. They are very persistent. Uh, so I say, so you know, maybe there are opportunity elsewhere, like in biotech and energy. Uh, the uh, that's one thought. The the other, I think, right now, just so much paper on that. Uh, in general, okay, even yeah. in the energy market, there's so much paper, but gold is even more. And uh, there's so much manipulation, so much paper on that. Uh, so my, my 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 thought is just let our friend Goldman, you know, uh, push gold down. I mean. Create a great buying opportunity for us, right? I mean, right now I have other good sector. I think uh, uh, looking yeah. more, little bit more promising, like biotech, like energy. And then I wait for our uh, Goldman to create bargain for us. <laughs> That's my thought. All right, all right, Chen. Well, it looks like we're just about out of time. That's probably a good strategy. And of course, you are a multi-sector opportunist. You find ways to make money in different sectors. And uh, you've done very well that way. Unlike yours truly, I tend to be focused so much on gold all the time. And you know what they say is a, a broken clock is right twice a day, Chen. So I suppose one of these days, those of us who are perpetually long in gold will make a lot of money. But in the meantime, it's the time value of money that's costly. So uh, I appreciate what you have to offer, Chen. And yes, we would have you back to talk about some of your other favorites sometime in the near future as well. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Jay. Folks, that's all the time we got for now, but uh, coming up next, uh, Jeff Deist of the Mises Institute. And Jeff, uh, we're going to talk to him about uh, applying Austrian economics uh, to making money. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Jeff Deist. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Calinex is a junior with major near-term catalysts. This tightly held company is advancing its projects containing copper, zinc, gold, and silver in Manitoba, Canada. Calinex's projects are within 10 miles to Hut Bay's mine that has less than five years of ore. 
Kalinex has high-grade deposits and new targets with exciting discovery potential, with drill results anticipated shortly. Now is the time to learn more about Kalinex by visiting Kalinex.ca. That's C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X dot C-A. Kalinex is publicly traded under the symbol CNX in Canada and CLLXF in the U.S. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Jeff Dice. He is the president of the Mises Institute. Uh, that's an educational organization dedicated to promoting Austrian economics, uh, freedom, and peace. And it's probably an institution that uh, we should be more in touch with on a regular basis here uh, because that's the, the goals of, of this radio show certainly are along the same lines and using the same tactics, I believe. That is to let people be free and to... Uh, uh, encourage limited government so that we can be free. You know, Jeff previously worked with uh, Ron Paul. He was his chief of staff, and earlier than that, he had also been uh, had another role with Congressman Paul. So he is uh, very close to Ron Paul. Talks to him frequently, as uh, Daniel McAdams does, who's on this show as well. Sometimes, so it's really great to have uh, Jeff with me again. Thanks for joining me, Jeff. Hi, Jay. Thanks so much. Really good to have you with me. I understand. Before we went on the air, you were talking to somebody about. Was it Social Security or Medicare or something like that? Oh, no. I was talking to a little old lady, literally, about Medicare, and uh, she had been frightened by a um, Medicare counselor. There are apparently a lot of scam operations out there uh, that that prey on people who are unaware of what they need to do now that Medicare is the law of the land, and they go out and they're concerned about the penalties, etc., um, so it, one of these counselors had sort of preyed on her, and it turned out that uh, she had nothing to worry about. But it just goes to show you that uh, you know none of us really knows how to comply with all the laws they've crafted for us. Yeah, it's uh, it really is it really is a problem. I mean, in terms of just figuring out Social Security and all the different angles to it, and and you know what it, what it covers and what it doesn't cover, and then the alternatives, the sort of I guess quasi private. Uh, sector alternative insurance companies that you can latch onto that are in bed with the government and they work with the government and provide it's just it, it is incredibly complicated and I know from first hand experience I'm thankful that I have a wife who looks after that stuff for me and I didn't have to worry too much about it but uh, Jeff I'd like to talk to you a little bit today about the whole idea of applying Austrian economics to making money believe it or not we'd like to do that and you know I remember I can remember um, David Tice, my good friend David Tice, used to be on CNBC back in the days of the late 90s even already, and then in the 2000s, long before, well, after the, uh, the dot-com bubble burst, and then David was there year after year talking about how we were building up another bubble in the housing sector and other areas as well. And, of course, they just laughed at him. David is very much a, an Austrian school thinker, uh, and there were a lot of others too, and of course, uh, 
finally they were right. Finally, the Austrians were right, and the uh, and the uh, you know the housing bubble burst, and we had one of the worst financial calamities of um, since the Great Depression. Uh, and many people think it hasn't really gone away much at all yet. Uh, that we're still in a contraction phase. The economy isn't doing probably as well as what the mainstream says it's doing. But uh, Mark Thornton, you had an interview with Mark Thornton, one of the economists that's associated with the Mises Institution. The end of bubble blowing. Can you explain, maybe give our listeners a little sense of the Austrian business cycle and how, if you watch it and sort of sense where we're at in that cycle, you can sort of see what's coming? Well, Jay, in essence, Austrian business cycle theory is based on monetary policy. And it posits that monetary expansions, when they are created by governments or central banks unnaturally, and hence cause an unnatural increase in the supply or monetary base, uh, and when they cause an unnatural lowering of interest rates, inevitably lead to malinvestment and a resulting bust. Now, what Austrian business cycle theory does not explain per se is how to time or make money off the resulting bust. Yeah. It, do- it does teach that the bust comes. And, and we shouldn't think of this as some sort of abstract. I mean, there are many, many instances in recent history where people got quite rich off of shorting busts. Uh, mm-hmm. Mark, Mark Spitznagel, author of The Dow of Capital, is, of course, only one example, someone who became a billionaire uh, as a result of the 2008 crash. And then there are perhaps more suspicious examples of people becoming quite rich by shorting something like our friend George Soros yeah. uh, when, with some of his currency trades. So this isn't anything new. Um, I think that the Austrian school deserves credit for identifying it, for uh, explaining it, but you know, cycles have existed throughout history because monetary has existed, excuse me, monetary expansion has existed throughout history, even prior to central banks. Well, so what are your, what are your thoughts, what are your thoughts and the thoughts of Mark Thornton and other economists about what we're seeing now? Because, you know, we've had this incredible um, collapse of the equity markets. Uh, Prices fell for a short period of time across the board, pretty much, not only stock prices, but commodities and all kinds of things. Uh, we have uh, you know, huge amounts of unemployment. The malinvestment came back to roost. Of course, we saw, uh, we saw that cleansing process, but then incept the Federal Reserve uh, and seems to be doing the same thing that, that caused the problem. At least that's my sense of it. So what are, what are people saying within the Mises Institute now about what's going on at this moment in time? Well, there's no question that the Fed has managed to reinflate the bubble, at least in equity markets and certain asset classes, and has reinflated it in bigger and worse ways than 2008. So if you read David Stockman's Contra Corner um, every day, which I do, you will probably be very alarmed about this, uh, the fact that the bubble has grown, that derivatives have continued to pace, that the overall worldwide debt levels are actually higher than they were in 2008, and that both businesses and individuals, uh, personal debt and and business debt have started to creep back up to levels at or above 2008. So there's nothing happy uh, about the the debt that is uh, washing over over the world. But when you mention asset classes going down in the last crash, it's interesting that that about the only thing that didn't go down was gold, which, which tends to teach us that gold, although it certainly is a commodity, is a different type of commodity. And that while diversification can turn out to be bunk, in other words, your real estate, your stocks, your bonds, 
um, you know, other, other, you know, your commodity investments can all go down simultaneously uh, during a crash, which we saw in 2008. Uh, gold uh, as a store of value and as a safe kind of money tends to be a place where people go during times of uncertainty. So I would say that, um, you know, while there are definite anecdotal symptoms of another horrific crash, whether you want to consider the uh, skyscraper index, as Mark Thornton talks about, and the building boom, whether you want to talk about, um, you know, what's happening in places like the Hamptons, if you want to talk about people still spending $300,000 on expensive dinners in Las Vegas, these are all anecdotal examples um, that we haven't learned anything and that we're right back where we were in 2008, if not in a worse spot. So clearly a crash, if you want to call it that, or a correction is coming um, and clearly, there are going to there are people who are going to make money and become rich off the next one, just as there were the last one. Mm-hmm. Well, we had uh, we we were talking to your friend and mine, uh, Michael Oliver, a little while ago. Michael is definitely a believer in Austrian economics, but he uses his technical tools to try to help him time uh, the market. And I think he's had some success in the past. Certainly, I've been uh, following him and what he's been doing. Uh, so, I guess uh, I, I guess in a way you could uh, join the party if you knew when to leave before you were too intoxicated, right? And, and you might profit from it. Well, absolutely. There are people who sold their houses in the mid-2000s uh, because they thought that the housing market was just overheated for their particular region. And they, they looked at things on paper and they realized there was no organic growth happening and that housing prices were crazy. Now, houses continued to go up for another couple of years, so they didn't necessarily hit the absolute peak. Uh, but prices crashed to at least 2,000 and oftentimes pre-2,000 levels. Um, so c- certainly some people were able to buy back their houses or simply uh, bank a lot of uh, uh, capital gain as a result of that. Um, so you know, certainly there are probably lots of people smarter than me right now shorting the Dow uh, because I think the Dow is at unsustainable levels, and I think most of the companies uh, are, are – obscenely priced when you consider their actual earnings. Um, but you have to have some wealth to do that, and you also have to have some nerve to do that because yeah. uh, short, shorting is not uh, for the faint of heart. No, it's not. It's a very dangerous game, in fact. Of course, there's some ETFs that allow you to do some of that, perhaps uh, without so much risk as, as going out and actually shorting the instruments themselves. But, you know, um, you you had a you do an interview, Jeff, and I, I would like to just... Uh, let our listeners know. I believe you do a weekend interview, don't you, every weekend? Right. Mises and Weekends. Mises Weekends and, and some great stuff there. Uh, one I think you did recently, well, maybe going back uh, late last year with Bob Murphy, the Fed's stock market casino. And this is really the way it seems to be, to me to be. I mean, I look at some of these ETFs and especially some of these uh, these triple, double and triple ETFs, they move extremely fast. You can either make money or lose money extremely fast. And there are, clearly are people in their institutions, the Goldman Sachs of this world, that have, uh, you know, have logarithms, computer models that are, that are getting, buying and selling stocks, uh, you know, in and out so fast that you can't even see them move. Uh, and so is this, is this what's, what's going on? It seems to me more than anything else, what, what seems to bother the Fed and what the, the Fed is most concerned about is keeping the stock market rising and keeping this casino game going. Why do you think that is? Do you think you're, you have some experience uh, in Washington? Uh, a lot of these lawmakers, uh, are they in this gambling casino in the stock market? 
Well, a lot of them certainly are. Um, I would say the Fed has managed to keep the stock market going in nominal terms. Uh, uh-huh. In real terms, I'm not sure that the market is higher than it's ever been. Um, but it, it is an interesting conundrum that the, the political class that talks endlessly about voters and about egalitarianism and about uh, wealth inequality is, is the class that is so terrified to confront the Fed or central bankers to say, well, that's independent and we can't really understand monetary policy and, and you know, the Fed is, ought to be left alone. Um, it's really complete nonsense. Anyone with a few hours' time can learn what the Fed means. Anyone with a few hours' time can demystify this stuff. And as you mentioned, it really is sad the way markets work today. I think the average little guy has very little chance against computer algorithms and against instantaneous trading. And I also think that it's perverse and and sad that we've forgotten what markets are supposed to be. Markets are supposed to be clearinghouses. They're supposed to be places where people put uh, investment capital at risk so that it can go to its best and highest uses, so that it can clear out bad debt, so it can clear out bad companies, so it can replace bad management, and also provide capital and money for startups, for ventures that show promise. And at some mm-hmm. point in a true clearinghouse, um, you know, good decisions are rewarded, bad decisions are punished. So markets in their abstract sense are noble. They perform a noble purpose. But what we have today in America is so rigged and so crony uh, that it 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 really causes despair, I think, for the average investor. Yeah, no question about it. You know, um, I think David Stockman makes a very good point when he's when he's talking about this endless quantitative easing that is essentially destroying. It's it's really obscuring the price uh, price discovery. It's not allowing price discovery to take place. If you don't allow capital to be priced properly, then you're destroying capitalism, I would think. And so, instead of uh, the noble uh, the noble function that you mentioned. Capitalism really uh, serves a very valuable purpose in terms of generating growth in the economy instead of, uh, instead of really picking the pockets of average people, redistributing wealth. You know, I like to think of it, Jeff, a little bit like I'm familiar with these little penny stocks in Canada, as you know. And one of the biggest risks that we have as investors in those stocks is dilution. Well, that's, uh, these little companies go out. They don't have any money, so they go out and issue another 10 million shares. And all of a sudden, or 50 million, and all of a sudden, your piece of the pie is 50% of what it was before. Well, when I think back to quantitative easing and the trillions of dollars that Mr. Bernanke created uh, during that time frame, that it, in essence, we as dollar holders have all been diluted by a huge amount because all of a sudden, huge amounts of money have been created out of nothing and given, uh, given to the bankers, essentially, to the, to the privilege of the ruling elite. So uh, do you think that's a fair analogy? Well, there's no question. The monetary base has quadrupled four times over since the 2008 crash. Now, the reason most of us do not see and feel that as directly as we might in consumer prices is because much, not all, but much of that monetary base is still sitting on the balance sheets of Fed member banks. In other words, they have not deployed that capital into the general economy via lending, but rather they've just pumped up their reserves. They're above and beyond bank reserve requirements. And that makes sense because in times of economic uncertainty, banks, like anybody else, like to hold on to their capital and stay fairly liquid. So mm-hmm. there, you, know, you can pump quantitative easing onto the bank's balance sheets till the cows come home. What you cannot do is make banks loan money uh, 
in, at, at greater risk than the small amount of interest they can simply get from the Fed um, if they're not so inclined to do so. So th- that's what's happening. Um, m- this money has either remained on bank balance sheets or found its way into the equity markets. It is starting slowly but surely to find its way into consumer prices. Uh, but it's it's something where you know every action has an opposite reaction and quadrupling the monetary base uh, of Fed balance sheets in just uh, in less than ten years is going to have a terrible terrible impact on all of us. Yeah, the, the less than ten years probably uh, you know, but a lot of things can go on. The party can go on, and and the process can continue a while longer. Uh, you had another discussion, I think, with uh, Patrick Barron. Uh, an interview with him talking about essentially about the dollar's uh, hegemony uh, and, you know, how much longer it can go on. You know, Nixon caused us to default on the uh, on our obligation uh, to exchange gold for, for paper in 1971. Then Henry Kissinger set up what has become the petrodollar system and what seems like that is enforced by U.S. military power around the world and, uh, you know, make a case that really what the U.S. has to do is be able to control uh, the pricing of petroleum. At least that's part of the, the theory anyway, and that's what seems to have happened post-1971 uh, and when Kissinger and the Nixon administration set up the what became known as the petrodollar system. Uh, did uh, I think you had a discussion maybe along those lines with Patrick Barron. Uh, what, what could cause the end of, of the dollar uh, imperium? Well, Patrick's a very interesting guy, and as he points out, the dollar has become what the euro was from the beginning, which is essentially a political project. It uh-huh. is a political project that is propped up by nothing more than the full faith and credit of the U.S. government and, of course, its military might. Um, and the fact that we have an unholy arrangement with OPEC, whereby OPEC sells fuel in dollars rather than euro or renminbi or whatever. Uh, but at some point people are not going to simply hold on to dollars that are rapidly devaluing. The, the political project, unlike a commodity-backed dollar, uh, is just that. It's something that can rise and fall with the political fortunes of the U.S. So for the moment, uh, with all the unrest in Europe, with the problems in, in Russia, and with the slowing growth in China, the U.S. dollar is still, uh, perhaps other than the Swiss franc, the, the, the least ugly baby in the nursery. But... Uh, uh, at some point, the rest of the world is going to say no mas. Um, they're already awash in dollars, and they're going to realize that we're never going to clean up our fiscal house, and that as a result, um, we've essentially exported our inflation to them. Well, it's a, it's a nasty project. It, it seems to me that uh, our militarism overseas, and this is a topic perhaps for another day, we talked to Daniel McAdams about what the U.S. is doing with its military and, uh, and the propaganda that comes into us and the stories that we're being told are nothing uh, short of, uh, of just straight-out lies. But in any event, uh, you know, we talk a lot of gloom and doom. My engineer is telling me we only have a minute left. You also, uh, on your radio program, talked about... Um, some reasons for optimism. Maybe with 30 seconds, give me a reason why I shouldn't be so grumpy. <laughs> well, Jay, a case for optimism is simple. What, you know, as Herb Stein told us, what can't go on forever won't go on forever. So we okay. know that the entitlement system is not going to work forever, and, and uh, it's up to us to uh, replace it with something better. 
Well, that's a, that's a nice, quick, short answer. Um, I, I want to thank you, Jeff, for being with us again. Uh, tell our listeners where they can go to, to feed on all of the great um, radio podcasts, the podcasts that you have and other uh, lots of information at the Mises. Is it Mises.org? M-I-S-E-S? It's Mises.org, and we encourage you to come and, uh, and learn everything you'd care to learn about Austrian economics for free. Yeah, please do. And also, you know, there you guys have some great events coming up and one I'm looking forward to going to uh, in Connecticut in the near future. So I hope to talk to you again sometime soon, Jeff. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Jay. Next week, uh, my guest is going to be James Perloff. He's the author of Truth is a Lonely Warrior. I'm going to be talking to James the first uh, Tuesday of every month to go over his book. Uh, it's a very, very important book. I think he really covers a lot of the same topics that Ed Griffin has has covered, Creature from Jekyll Island. Uh, and uh, we'll also talk to Gene Epstein next week as well, who will be talking to us about uh, the next New York City Junta with John Mackey uh, is going to be there uh, as a key speaker. Uh, so it should be a very interesting time. I want to thank each of you for listening. Thanks uh, also to my producer, Tacey Trump, and Matt Widener, my engineer, and all of you for again for listening. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at Dynacor Gold.